This is Mark Fletcher, and welcome to my world. Welcome to Southern Tales, tall and otherwise. Southern rock was a southern was a seventies thing for sure. Yeah, I guess it still lives, but in the seventies, it is what we drank for energy. It was the gas in our tanks, and it was blaring out of our eight track players. Now. There's a lot of folks who want to explain you the progression of Southern rock or explain how it started in the cotton fields of the South with spirituals sung by slaves and some connected to country and jazz and bring back people like, uh, you know, uh, the yodelers of the early 20s and the, the mountain country songs. And, and there's folks that connected to jazz. The truth is, it probably grew out of all of those things. But with the invention of the electric guitar and, and the coming of the Beatles and Elvis and all that good stuff, it was inevitable there would be some type of regional cultural sound coming out of the South that would be bluesy as well as rock. You see, in the 70s, it was all we cared about. And there were many great bands. They all shared a kinship. They toured together, they partied together, and they were usually grouped together. If you want to know who they are, simply listen to the Charlie Daniels song, The South's Gonna Do It Again. They're all there. But above them all was Leonard Skinner. Why? It's not really a hard question. Maybe it's because they seemed like us. You know, they, they, they weren't fancy. You didn't see the lead singer wearing spandex or makeup, and there was no flowing scarves or boas or, you know, any any of that stuff that you associated with the glam bands and, and, and all the other bands who needed a gimmick. You know, Leonard Skinner didn't need a gimmick. You, you have a lead singer barefoot, plain and simple, like us, and so were his songs. Words and stories you could understand and relate to. Think about it. Simple man. Oh, take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come and they will pass. You'll find a woman and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there was someone up above. Not saying anything bad about folks up north or overseas or anywhere, but in the south... This is what we were taught. He was able to connect us with our spiritual side as well as our rocking side and, and, and make it sound good to people in the country. Heck, the name of their third album was Nothing Fancy, spelled N-U-T-H-I-N, nothing. Just like we said it. There was something special about that band. And, like I say, it's just a southern thing. 
sit back and enjoy. And we continue to push Southern music on our podcast. And this season, we feature Memphis music from Audra Brown. The album is called The Cody Sessions and is available at bandcamp.com. Often called a cross between Cheap Trick and Joan Jett with a Southern twang, this album was produced by Cody Dickinson of the North Mississippi All-Stars. We think it rocks. So enjoy. You may follow the link on our page at broadneckmusic.com to find this and other music by Audra Brown. We encourage you to support our local music community. Southern Tales, Season 2, Episode 1, Leonard Skinner. Now, tonight, we start Season 2, and thank you so much for your continued listening and support. It, it means so much to me. I, I promised that Season 2 would start to move into college days and after, where drugs and death loom large and loud. I... I really worked hard on this season to try to keep the darkness to a narrow band and continue to tell the lighter stories. I mean, some of the darkness is reality, and it won't go away, and and I'll, I'll tell it. But I thought it'd be cool to start this season with what means the most. That'd be music. As you know, music has framed my life really from the beginning. Uh, I mentioned before... My father listened to Marty Robbins, uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. You know, those were our eight tracks on our Studebaker. Eventually, he became a Tony Orlando fan, which wound up being very embarrassing because in those days, a 50-year-old man wasn't supposed to dance. But he liked Tony Orlando, and he could dance to Candida and knock three times. But more on that later. Anyway... The, the, these, these folks and, and all others are part of my musical foundation. And, and these stories are part of the foundation of this podcast. So I still recommend you go back and, and listen to the preceding episodes so you can understand everything that's going on. We'll frequently refer back to, to characters and events that happened earlier. So it's kind of cool. And season one, I've been told, is, is pretty humorous and Although they say episode eight is the funniest. Who knows? Um, listen, these are my stories that I've either lived or heard. And while there may be some disputes about the actual facts, 
this is the way that I remember it. And in my opinion, every goddamn word is true. When, when I was a kid, my parents got me a record player. You know, the old plastic kind with the records that would stay up on the uh, queue and flop down on one another, and you could listen to a bunch at one time without having to get up and change the record. Anyway, when I was a little kid, I had these records that were, they may have been plastic, that were like Jack and the Beanstalk and stuff like that. Uh, but soon enough, I discovered my mom's old 78s. I started wearing those things out. But one in particular was my favorite. It was the Elvis Presley 78 of That's All Right Mama, and the other side was Blue Moon of Kentucky. I wish I still had that 78 because it's probably worth a dollar or two, but the music just grabbed me. Yeah, it wasn't my dad's cup of tea, and we listened to his stuff, including folks like Andy Williams and Ray Conniff. He enjoyed Lawrence Welk, which we watched pretty damn regular. So I was stunned a bit. But in the summer at our local swimming pool, everyone's radio was turned to WHBQ AM 56, where they played all the pop hits. And and, and it was magical. And, and so suddenly everybody was in the music. I remember in sixth grade, there was this girl named Marla Baldwin, who, like her big deal was she'd recorded a 45. And I think she even brought it to school, which was pretty cool. But not to be outdone, Tony Asimacher and myself, well, we had to tell everybody that we had a band, too. And we had a record coming out, too. Yeah, we could never produce the record, but it was cool for just a minute uh, before we like moved on to something else. Like, uh, who knows what it was. It might have even been fishing at that point. But uh, anyway, in the summer at the pool, AM56 played all the pop hits, and, and it was so cool. And then in 1973, WKIRFM out of Jackson, uh, started and and they played a new time type of music called album oriented rock AOR and then what that meant was that the record got played all the way through I mean at night they would <clears throat> sometimes play two or three records all the way through you know uh, and you heard all the songs on the record and that is when you really got to know a band and got to know the songs and got to appreciate everything they were about instead of just the one song that somebody in New York City thought you should hear and maybe they could make some money off of. And, and at the same time, um, my dad, who was a big wheel in the VFW, he used to go all over the state on membership campaigns and lobby state leaders and the governor and different things like that. And he even was involved with the National VFW. We'll talk more about that later. But one day, uh, he asked me if I wanted to go with him to Memphis to Ardent Studios to see a new band perform. Now, he was friends with a guy in the VFW who was a big wheel or big shot at WMC FM 100 in Memphis. And I didn't know what band it was going to be, but I did know that uh, Ardent Studios was where Led Zeppelin had recorded because I knew everything about every album that I had, and I thought that'd be cool. So we went. It was October the 30th, 1973. And, you know, <clears throat> I was just a kid, but we got the parking lot, and there were, I don't know, 25 or 30 people there. And uh, we walked in, and while they were setting up, a short guy with stringy, dirty blonde hair, like, threw me a sweatshirt that said, Sounds of the South Records on one side, and supports other music on the other. It was Ronnie Van Zant. His only words to me were, here you go, kid. 
I still have that shirt. Never worn, pristine condition. You can see it on our website. I was pretty blown away by the whole... I think they only played four songs. Um, but I was blown away by everything. Just just the power of how Ronnie acted and, and delivered those simple words. It, it never left me. A few months later, our junior high beta club was voting on what to do with the money that we raised every year. I think we'd stand out in the street with ice cream buckets and collect money or whatnot. But these annual fundraisers would fund a trip that would take. And our junior beta club sponsors told us we could go to Jackson Coliseum to see the Harlem Globetrotters or to Memphis to see a concert. We voted. My vote was easy. I love the Harlem Globetrotters and watched them almost you know, once a month on ABC Wide World of Sports because they were great. And I think I'd actually seen them before. This is back when Meadowlark Lemon was actually there. It was cool. But the vote was, uh, I think, 32 to 1. And um, we went to the Mid-South Coliseum this spring. Um, guess who? It was Leonard Skinner. I still wasn't going to go, but this girl named Robin, who was a really cute girl, let somebody know that she wanted to sit with me in the back of the bus. And so that made it a real easy decision to go. And um, when we got there, we were at Mid-South Coliseum. 10,000 people, nosebleed seats. This guy, he didn't run around. He didn't jump on the, the amps and throw the microphone and spit in the crowd. And He didn't. He just stood there and sang. And he sang with power and passion, plain and simple. Later, somebody told me he was barefoot, but I didn't see that. We, we, I wasn't close enough to see it and wouldn't have noticed probably. But it was loud, and it sparked something even more in me. I thought, man, I don't know if I could be a musician or not, but I think I can write. I would love to write words like that. I could taste it. You see, it, it, it never ever went away and it it grew day by day and so I listened to WKIR more and more and 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 started buying albums and everywhere in any way I could for Christmas I would just have a long list of albums that I wanted you know it, it was exciting they were everything and each new record brought a bevy of new information I mean you would open up the sleeves and and if they were fold-out jackets, there was information and pictures all over the inside, and, and sometimes the sleeve of the record had lyrics or, or more information about the band or, or tours or whatever. I read everything. I knew everything. I mean, I, I would spend hours checking out a new record. Sometimes there were hidden clues. Like, like on Hotel, Hotel California, there was an actual... Um, on, on the black part of the record, next to the label, it was inscribed, handwritten, V-O-L is Five Piece Live. Man, I fretted on that message, that secret message from the Eagles for quite some time before I realized V-O-L stood for Victim of Love, and Five Piece Live meant there were no overdubs in the recording. They just recorded it just like in the studio, and that was what it sounded like on the record. How cool is that? Now, I'm not going to tell you I didn't go some, take some records backwards to try to find the backtracking or whatever, like the Beatles records. I don't think I ever heard it. I mean, 
I heard them say, everybody smokes pot, everybody smokes pot, but that wasn't hard. I think everybody heard that. Anyway, uh, Leonard Skinner Records, you know, didn't have lyric sheets with them, but they didn't need lyric sheets with them. You could understand every word, every beautiful word, every song. It was, um, it was powerful because the stories were understandable. Um, it, it was just great. So then in, uh, 1977, uh, that summer, they put out one or two songs from their upcoming record called Street Survivors. I bet that summer on WKIR, I heard that smell, I don't know, five million times it seems like. It was such a great song. And, and then the second one they released off of it was, um, what was it? Um, I Know a Little Maybe? Anyway, it was great. And I just knew the new Leonard Skinner record was going to be good. And then a friend of mine who had moved to Florida suggested that we come down there and see them in Miami where they started the tour. I think it was like the first show was at the Miami Sportatorium, which was actually in Hollywood, which was somewhat north of, of Miami. And so a buddy of mine, we rode down there, made the trip. We had tickets. We were inside. It was an amazing show. They played the new song. Steve Gaines was playing guitar and sang. It was the first time anybody else had ever sang on a Leonard Skinner song except for Ronnie. It was pretty great. I, I took a picture that I still have a poster of on my wall today. Really, really cool. We got back, I mean, like, I don't know, October the 16th or 17th, something like that. And the morning of October the 21st, 1977. I was in a parking lot at high school doing what I always did, eating a donut, maybe two donuts actually, that I got at the Sherry's Dandy Bakery and a little carton of milk. When the news came on the radio that there'd been a plane crash the evening before in southern Mississippi, Leonard Skinner's plane had crashed and there were fatalities, but they didn't know exactly who. Had a bad feeling. Really bad feeling about that one. Later in the day, they announced that Ronnie Van Zandt and Stephen Gaines were the two members of the band who had been killed and several others were critically injured and they didn't know if they were going to survive or not. But I knew in my heart that there was no replacing Ronnie Van Zandt. I knew at that point Leonard Skinner was done, that there would never be a new record from Leonard Skinner, and all we had was what we had. I was depressed for some time musically. I mean, I didn't know, you know, who the next, you know, favorite band could possibly be. Um, and and it turned out to be true. While Leonard Skinner did go through some different variations with the Rosin and Collins band, and then they reformed to do the tribute tour with Johnny singing, it was never the same. And the new songs they wrote, they weren't Ronnie Van Zant songs. Jo Johnny was a good vocalist, and the band was fine. But it was Ronnie's band. They were his words that made the band go. So it never, ever happened again. And the truth is, I saw Johnny Van Zant in 1979 at Poets Music Hall in Memphis when he had the Johnny Van Zant band. He was far better with the Johnny Van Zant band than he was with Leonard Skinner because it was his words. It made sense. He, and he's a great vocalist, too. But he wasn't Ronnie Van Zant and Leonard Skinner. Um, I think... 
I think the coolest way I can have you understand what Leonard Skinner means and, and what they, what it does to folks is that a few years after the plane crash, my brother graduated high school. And so I drove back out to the sticks from the big city for the graduation. And, um, now he did graduate. He did get a diploma, which was very cool. And after the thing, uh, he had a few girls and we went riding around the strip and we got some beer and, we went out in the country, went riding and riding, and, you know, it just got kind of monotonous. And finally, he drove back on the, up out on the strip and dropped him off. And I, I got back in the front seat with him, and I said, well, what up? He goes, come on. So it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. We drive out in the country. We have a six-pack of beer. And beyond the city lights, pull out in the field. The moon shines upon us. We get the beer on the hood of the car, open the doors, turn on the cassette player. By then, they have cassettes, right? And Leonard Skinner is blaring out the car speakers while we're sitting on the hood, drinking beer in the moonlight. And there we are out there singing the words to give me three steps, just as loud as we possibly can. And it feels great. And that's what you do with Leonard Skinner's songs. You feel great. It makes you feel good. You know the words and you can sing the words and it means something to you. That was one of the most special nights of my life made possible by Leonard Skinner. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who are curious, um, Robin sat in the back of the bus with me for just a little while on the trip to Memphis. But it wasn't long before she realized I had no idea what to do and um, like I said, she was in the band that they knew. And so it wasn't long before she was in another seat with a guy who was, you guessed it, he was in the band. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I enjoyed the concert. <laughs> For the liner notes this episode and all episodes for all seasons of the Southern Tales podcast, please go to broadneckmusic.com. Here you'll find more info about the episode, more depth, maybe the answers to your questions, sometimes pictures. You'll also find out more about our kick-ass theme music this, this season from Audra Brown from Memphis, Tennessee. You will also find our contact email address which is stalespodcast at gmail.com let me know how you feel questions you have and maybe uh, you can relate some stories of yours that you have as well so ask us all the questions you possibly can and hey if you like it please tell one person that you like southern tales podcast and all the fun we're having remember it's 20 minutes and a smile once a week. Thanks for listening. See you next week on Southern Tales. Southern Tales.